Welcome to Healing 101, the mini bite-sized episodes that are bursting full of information from leading experts and doctors who are here to help us understand difficult topics and teach us about the various ways we might be able to improve our mental health. The point of these episodes is to educate you about different mental health disorders and therapies that you may never have heard of before, because ultimately, the more people know, the more people we can help on their healing journeys. On today's Healing 101, I am talking to Dr. Michael Strober, a distinguished professor of psychiatry and the director of the Eating Disorders Program at the Neuropsychiatric Institute since 1982. His research centers on risk factors in eating disorders and the long-term course, outcome, and treatment of them. As someone who has suffered from an eating disorder myself, this is an episode I was very keen to do. We discuss what to do if you think someone is on the verge of an eating disorder and why someone perhaps suffers from the disorder in the first place. This is a fascinating Healing 101 with one of the most interesting men I've ever had the pleasure of talking to. So Dr. Strober, you're a very fascinating and very experienced um, professional when it comes to girls and eating disorders. So would you mind sharing with us today why anorexia develops and touch on the nature versus nurture argument, which I think puzzles so many people? Well, anorexia nervosa involves very rapidly As soon as there is weight loss, and bearing in mind that most people who develop anorexia nervosa have normal weight through their development, but as soon as weight loss begins, for reasons that are completely innocent, you get a tooth extracted. You can't eat, you lose weight. You don't feel well. You can't eat, you lose weight. The reasons for initial weight loss are not that a person wants to lose half of their body mass. They're quite innocent. They're benign. I have never met in 46 years a person with anorexia nervosa who said, I set out to lose 50, 75% of my natural body weight or 25% of my natural body weight. What happens after the initial weight loss is that the person is quickly convinced that weight loss is a desperate, essential need. And they eliminate food. And very soon after this begins, they are convinced that their body is much larger than it should be. And from that point forward, the loss of weight and the insistence that it be continued is frantic, it's maniacal, it's compulsive, and nothing stands in the way. They dismiss the pleadings of loved ones to come to your senses. They are immune to the worry of family and loved ones. The weight loss is pursued in the same way that compulsions and phobias quickly emerge and are quickly defended as some sort of necessity to the mental stability or the behavioral safety of the individual. This, I do believe to be at the center of the origin of anorexia nervosa, at least the main characteristics of anorexia nervosa, which is rapid weight loss and the ability, incomprehensible as it may seem, to maintain for a prolonged period of time survival on three to 500 calories a day, 
and the apparent tolerance or indifference to the weight loss and the abject fear of even a small amount of weight gain. The only way you can understand this is from some sort of biological evolutionary foundation. And that is why it is very, very difficult for patients to be convinced that the sensible way of approaching this is to restore weight, because as soon as they hear that, they are thrown into an instantaneous panic. No, it's this absolute fight or flight mode that your brain goes into, and it's it's exacerbated by the weight loss because, as we know, the brain gets more and more depleted and you re- basically need to refeed the patient of anorexia before you can really start treatment because the brain isn't working in its normal way, nor is it able to really think rationally. That is true. And this begs the question, well, how do you approach an individual who is in the early stage of this? who is in the throes of what is a type of irrationality to at least allow them to think that there is a necessary alternative, bearing in mind that most people with anorexia nervosa understand that they are in the grips of something that controls them as opposed to their ability to control what they are experiencing. I've seen many, many, many patients with anorexia nervosa, and virtually everyone, despite their stubborn resistance to treatment, understands that there is something mystifying and something frightening that has seized the management of their thought and their emotion. They have the ability to acknowledge that. And thus, the question is, how do you approach a very sensitive discussion without causing panic and the immediate retreat from the recommendations that you have to make and to make to the family as well for young people? That is the key. But unfortunately, I think particularly anorexics have seem to have a very, very high pain threshold to endure the starvation and to endure the pain and everything that goes with it, you've got to be a pretty stubborn, determined character. So it's being able to channel that energy into something else, into something good for you, as opposed to destroying you. On your point, the majority of people who develop anorexia nervosa have the capacity for focus and discipline in pursuing things that they deem to be important. And you see that in the school environment. Virtually every parent will describe their child as extraordinary in their capacity for focus, goal attainment, and having the discipline to pursue those goals. And once anorexia nervosa develops, that discipline is put towards avoidance of food and the ability to tolerate the loss of body mass, and the ability to function on 300 calories a day for an extended period of time. That capacity comes from someplace. There's no early environment that creates this. There are environments that can support discipline. 
there are environments that directly encourage discipline and the attainment of grades, but that capacity is present at the time of birth. What we do know on this point about the genetics of anorexia nervosa is that it is associated with academic achievement. And academic achievement obviously requires more than a modicum of focus and discipline. Yeah, and I mean, it usually comes with a perfectionist character and girls who, unfortunately, it's very sad, but, you know, they often have a lot going for them and they've sort of seemed to have let all that fall to the wayside. And as you say, their focus becomes the illness and it's ironic that the illness to them gives you a bit of a high and it does give you a buzz. So it's very, very difficult to treat someone when they're in that starved state. Yes. Anorexia nervosa is neither friend nor foe. And the issue of anorexia nervosa being adaptive to the individual needs understanding. Because remember, we possess fear and anxiety with some very, very rare exceptions. But virtually everyone has fear or anxiety albeit in varying degrees. Anxiety and fear keep us safe. If you are at the extreme, anxiety and fear are damaging because they forbid new learning, they forbid spontaneity, and the implications or the consequences are self-evident. So to say that anorexia nervosa is going to kill you to an individual who is naturally fearful and now is in the grips of fear and worry, albeit the fear or the phobia is their body mass, which is what causes so much confusion. But the instinct to be afraid and the instinct to have excessive worry is part of the developmental nature of anorexia nervosa. And if you tell somebody that it's irrational for you to be afraid, you're going against a strongly held instinct. And in that sense, it's creating a falsified view or a narrow point of view of what they are in the throes of. They need to understand that the anxiety that they have does not promote growth, nor does it promote survival. But the instinct to fear and avoid is something that has to be understood And along with that understanding is what happens to your safety when your anxiety is at the extreme. And the answer to that question is it never has an opportunity to be mitigated or lessened or cushioned. Anorexia nervosa is not your friend, but in certain respects, it's not your foe because of what we know about its origin. I mean, essentially, in some respects, it's trying to protect you. Yes, in the way that anxiety and fear protect us under normal circumstances. I just want to take a quick moment to say a big thank you to my wonderful sponsor, Bowdoin. Bowdoin is a British brand that has championed uplifting, eclectic British style since it was founded 31 years ago. Perhaps it's time to add to your collection this autumn with some new knitwear maybe with a modern twist such as a puff sleeve. I've just indulged in a new ultra soft cashmere, which I can honestly tell you I'll be living in this winter. 
But what I love most about the brand is that they've always championed women from a variety of different backgrounds and seek to inspire them to enjoy a life well lived, which is exactly what I'm aiming to do with my podcast. Head to Bowden.com to check out their new autumn collection or to their Instagram at Bowden underscore clothing. So Dr. Strober on parents and friends of someone who might be suffering from anorexia, what advice would you give them? How should they approach it? And from my experience, a lot of people are very naive in this respect and sort of say to you as you're recovering, oh, it's so great to see you looking so well. And immediately my brain certainly interprets that as, oh, Pandora, you're looking like you've put on weight. Oh, you look quite fat or oh, you look chubby. So what is the advice that you give parents and friends and et cetera of, of, of girls you see? Our advice is enjoy the time with your child, explore with them their new interests, ask how they are feeling about themselves, acknowledge that this might be a difficult time because of how long they've been afraid of the weight gain ask how they can be supportive to their child during this process. Uh, And by child, I mean of any age. So the instruction to parents will vary as a function of how things are progressing. But early on, we recommend against parents commenting on how the child is looking, but rather enjoying uh, the changes that they see and commenting on how important it is to hear a child's thoughts and the ability to express emotions that were hidden for so long. I think what so often happens and certainly what I found is that you might go out of that dangerous body weight zone but the anorexic mindset very much remains and your eating patterns can still be very disordered. What advice would you give people who are suffering in that respect? It's a complicated question because it depends on the age, it depends on whether they've had prior treatment, and it depends upon their resolve to avoid weight gain. And it also depends on their current weight, if I didn't mention that. Because if somebody's weight is well below a reasonable normal weight, and they're 45 years old, you have to be very, very careful about pushing further weight gain because it can be very destabilizing and there are potential serious consequences. So what you do is you maintain weight and you capitalize or you leverage those times where somebody is slipping medically and may require short-term medical interventions and you then encourage an increase in calories in order to prevent, hopefully, further episodes that led to their need for a medical hospitalization. You can increase calories without weight gain, and the person is better off for it. So that's how you try to leverage the care going forward. And then in terms of someone who has disordered eating patterns, what's the recommendation for that? Because I mean, a lot of girls suffer from now, especially with all these different diets going around and intermittent fasting being promoted. What's your advice for someone who is trying to 
ignore that advice and recover from an eating disorder? Should they not read magazines? Should they avoid social media? What do you think? What's realistic? Well, what is necessary is the focus on their self-esteem. If a person's self-esteem is strong, they're easily or more easily dissuaded from intermittent dieting when their weight is perfectly fine. There are two circumstances where intermittent dieting may be germane. One is when people are significantly overweight. And in some cases, intermittent fasting may be helpful in people who have autoimmune illness. Otherwise, if somebody who is at a reasonable weight is convinced that intermittent dieting should be part of their routine, uh, my first curiosity is, what is your self-esteem like? Interesting. Why would you insist on something that has no physical or physiological purpose but for an insecurity or a self-doubt? It's one thing to have a curiosity, but it still begs the question of why is this your curiosity? Yeah, well, Dr. Strober, thank you so much. You're very, very welcome, and thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healing 101. Just a reminder that if you're struggling or in need of someone to talk to, please remember to text SHOUT to 85258. Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. Mm-hmm.